Hello, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be speaking about one of the hard questions in the world of physical therapy. There are many. A few years ago, I was peppered with questions by an observation student. She was good at asking that which really got to the center of what we do and do not know, and how we know. One of which is, how long should beneficial therapeutic treatment effects last? At first, this question may appear simple. Beneficial therapeutic treatment effects should last indefinitely, right? But of course, that's not correct for a variety of reasons. Effects tend to fade. It's complicated. If you read enough studies, attend enough continuing education for professional development, and listen to enough experts, you could be forgiven for coming away confused. Depending on a number of factors, treatment effects vary. Some are instant and dramatic, with a seemingly inexplicable carryover, albeit with a mercurial quality often being associated with questions about who exactly responds best to these techniques, while others are slow, less dramatic, but more certain, and appear to apply to a broad swath of the population. However, the question is not really specific enough. That, it turns out, is part of the difficulty. There are at least three underlying and related questions, additional important modifiers, and at least one major presupposition, which must all be understood before we can begin to pin down an accurate, or at least ballpark, answer. However, Formulating a question is one of the foundational prerequisites of learning. Eventually, our questions get better, and we can learn more. But that one question stimulated the student's realization that more questions needed to be asked. And, by the way, we're all students. Learning should never stop. The underlying and related questions can be described as concerned with what happens at one of three levels of intervention. First, the delivery of a single treatment. Second, delivery of a single session of treatment. And third, upon completion of an episode of care, also known as discharge. More specifically, we can think of it this way. One, how long after delivery of a treatment technique or monotherapy could beneficial therapeutic treatment effects last? Who, how long after delivery of one session of treatment, which may include multiple techniques, should beneficial therapeutic effects last? And three, how long after delivery and conclusion of an episode of care, which likely included multiple techniques and dosages, which evolve over time as the patient changes, could beneficial therapeutic effects last? How I answer these questions in my setting, which is an outpatient orthopedics private practice with the majority of patients having chronic problems, is averaged across all diagnoses, all stages of acuity, and severity. First, at the level of delivery of a monotherapy or a single treatment. 20 minutes is the minimum floor for the response, meaning it ought to last at least this long. It is okay if results fade to zero in this time frame, but they should not be less than zero, thus a negative effect, i.e. 
one that is making the patient worse. At this level, a two-hour ceiling of maximal effect may be expected, with fading to zero during this time. In some patients, benefits will persist well beyond this time frame. Second, at the level of a single treatment session, two hours is the floor. It may decrease to zero after this time, with a two-day ceiling for maximum sustained effects that may thereafter fade over time to zero. Again, in some patients, benefits will persist well beyond this time frame. Third, at the level of the conclusion of an episode of care, i.e. discharge, two weeks is the minimum floor for maintenance of the discharge condition. This is with the requirement that the patient return to usual activities without loss of improvements that exceed measurement error. The open ceiling means that effects may last indefinitely. Now, about the modifiers that I mentioned. First, as best I can tell, there are six domains of interest which interact in ways that can positively affect short and long-term prognosis, outcomes, and can act as treatment effect modifiers. Second, almost none of the six domains are fixed entities. They will vary over time. We have to decide if some are contributory or non-contributory to the patient's chief complaint, if they are stable or unstable over time, and to what degree they will impact our efforts and the patient's recovery. Third, it's more complicated than that. Each domain has contained within itself subdomains that may interact with positive, negative, or neutral results. And fourth, having some sense of these modifiers is essential. But it is a complicated subject, one that I will expand upon at another time. For now, it is enough to say that you may have your own list of potential modifiers that ought to be scrutinized for their impacts on your patients. Now, some additional interpretation. First, why is there a floor for duration of treatment effects? In general, this is based on published research for various forms of intervention, monotherapeutically or in combination, plus clinical observations and surveys of working clinicians who actually use the techniques at our disposal in the world of physical therapy. It reflects the minimum duration of impact I expect to see and measure that is thought to represent the potential for greater improvement. It is not, however, a definitive indicator. All it means is that we might have our foot in the door for ongoing benefit. At the monotherapy and treatment session level, this is easy to monitor and is a commonly observed duration. In fact, most monitoring for this level of effect occurs within session. Some research indicates that within session improvements are a predictor of likely successful outcomes. Two, why is there a ceiling for duration of treatment effects? In general, this is based on published research for various forms of intervention, monotherapeutically or in combination, plus clinical observations and surveys of working clinicians who use the techniques at our disposal.
that reflects the typical but not maximum duration of impact I expect to see and measure that is thought to represent the most frequently encountered improvement response. At the monotherapy and treatment session level, this is easy to monitor and is a commonly observed duration. Observation for this occurs with what we call the interim assessment. This is where we ask the patient how their symptoms behaved after their last visit. So it occurs between sessions what happened. That's what we are observing. The time between sessions presents a window for treatment effects to fade unless there is some planning for activities that occur between sessions to potentially prevent the erosion of benefit. We may see some lack of carryover or at least incomplete carryover of benefit to the next session. If everything is managed well, then we see substantial or even complete carryover of benefit to the next session, and that is precisely what we are looking for. This allows summation of beneficial effects that move the patient toward the desired outcome. Three, why does the floor of two weeks and ceiling described as open exist for the category duration of treatment effect after an episode of care? So, after discharge. Similar to the general statements given above, two weeks is the minimum amount of time I expect a patient's condition to remain stable after discharge when they have completed an episode of care. Two weeks is also a common washout period for crossover trials to avoid contamination of the second arm with carryover of first arm treatment effects. Thus, it is also the amount of time I use clinically to monitor stability of acquired changes when patients are fully re-exposed to their usual activities. If the treatments have no durable effects, they would likely begin to erode measurably over time. The relapse rate in my practice for this time frame is approximately one-fifth of one percent, or one in 500 individuals. Even when relapse does occur, it is only partial loss of acquired benefits that is usually easily corrected. When patients pass their two-week trial with at least maintenance of acquired benefits that allow return to usual activities, it is a good predictor of likelihood of long-term successful maintenance. In addition, the two-week follow-up is a patient-driven request to be monitored with the assurance that they can return if problems arise. Remember, these are mostly patients with chronic problems. Many have some trepidation regarding the permanency of acquired changes, and this follow-up helps with validation. The ceiling described as open may also be thought of as indefinite or even unlimited, barring any new episode of injury. In other words, patients are good to go with whatever activities we have agreed to prepare them for. This includes sports, physical labor occupations, or any other physically challenging activities. Fourth, some single-factor monotherapies are best and have their most powerfully observable effects when used in isolation. This is dangerous to interpret without considering cofactors, which may have not been directly observed or intended, such as therapeutic alliance, patient motivation, etc. Observationally, 
This appears more common in simple acute cases, appears rarely in chronic cases, and is vanishingly small in complex chronic cases. Fifth, some combined factor polytherapies have simple additive effects that work best in combination. Unlocking this combination appears most predictably related to patient-specific factors and includes underlying pathology. This suggests that phenotyping responder subsets is important. Six, some combined factor polytherapies have complex multiplicative effects that work best in combination. And similar to as what I stated before, unlocking this combination appears most predictably related to patient-specific factors and includes underlying pathology. And again, this suggests that phenotyping responder subsets is important. Seven, more powerful effects of treatments that are appropriately targeted are theoretically predictable based upon combined factor polytherapies. What is known at present suggests our profession is moving towards this realization. This is the abandonment of the silver bullet monotherapy concept. What is unknown at present is what proportion of treatment techniques could be allocated to an appropriate underlying target or targets who first maximize beneficial constructive interactions. Some examples of this, warming up a muscle to increase its relative plasticity, thus reducing risk for injury during exercise. Preloading a joint complex to provide useful stabilizing feedback via increased neuroreceptor activity or establishing a good therapeutic alliance to aid patient education to decrease patient anxiety and fear of movement, etc. Second, minimize harmful, destructive interactions. And here I mean mostly that these interactions aren't necessarily creating harm by actively making the patient worse, although that could also be the case, but instead the addition of another therapy is canceling out the beneficial effects of a different helpful therapy or modality if you prefer. Some examples of this, using manual therapy to mobilize a hypermobile, unstable spinal segment in an effort to downregulate pain, but completely undoing the benefits of an exercise-based neuromotor control activity to stabilize the spine. Or, attempting to use exercise treatment in a patient who is acutely inflamed and is benefiting from therapeutic rest, except that it is interrupted by performing exercises that the patient is not yet ready for, resulting in maintenance of ongoing inflammation. Or, prescribing so many exercises, activity modifications, support device use for different required activities, all of which might be individually or even collectively useful, but because they are so burdensome to engage with, the patient ends up doing none of them, or at least less than what is optimal. And third, avoid non-contributory or ineffective interactions. Here, I mean traditionally understood effects without invoking the possibility of eliciting a specific beneficial psychological impact. For example, applying electrical stimulation to activate the inert quads of a patient post-TKA who has 20 centimeters of swelling in the knee compared to the opposite side 
and complete arthrogenic inhibition. Or dry needling applied to proximal aspects of hip adductor muscles in a patient who has an ankle fracture but no other lower extremity deficits. Or applying ice to a swollen joint to reduce swelling when elevation and compression is already working. All this rests upon a foundation of what we mean by a target toward which our treatments may be directed. In other words, what is the diagnosis? Please keep in mind that these are minimal targets for patients with chronic problems. If your practice involves patients with acute or subacute chronicity, or patients with a responder phenotype for the treatments that demonstrate powerful short-term effects, results will vary, oftentimes in dramatic fashion, so much so that it makes the timeframes I've mentioned above look implacably slow. Yet it is reality for most patients with chronic problems. There are no quick solutions. Our bodies make us earn our health, and they make us work to keep it. What we all want is a long-term solution. There are strategies to achieve this. However, as a dichotomous tool to reasonably classify the effects of our interventions, these criteria regarding duration of each of three beneficial levels of change at the monotherapy level of a single treatment, at the treatment session level, which may involve more than one type of therapeutic intervention, and at the level of an episode of care, have been notably helpful in my practice. I hope this perspective can help you in yours. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.